Hey everybody, welcome back to The Hustle. It's John Lamoureux. Okay, I try not to throw this word around very often. I'm very sensitive to that, but I do feel like this week we are talking to a bona fide legend. It is Jerry Casale, founding member of Devo. Now, some people say the Rock Hall doesn't matter. They don't care, it's not a big deal, and I guess ultimately that might be true. I think it matters, and I am of the opinion that all of the artists who are not currently in the Rock Hall of all of them, Devo deserves to be in there most. The reason I feel that way is because they are basically ground zero for new wave music. If you take that punk DIY garage rock aesthetic, kids banging away on guitars, and mix it with the newfound punk aesthetic of people banging away on synthesizers and merging the two, you have Devo. They are ground zero for this, probably Devo and the Cars. When I think of New Wave, they're the ones who created it. And the car's already in there, so why not Devo too? Anyway, I love Devo. We talk about all of the albums, pretty much the whole trajectory, except we didn't, I don't know why, we didn't get into the comeback album from a few years ago. Everybody wants one. And so I wanted to play a song from that, What We Do, which is right here. He put out a solo album back in, I think, 2005 by his alter ego, Jihad Jerry. Now, one of the things we're talking about in this conversation is that he recently recorded and put out a new single called I'm Gonna Pay You Back. That song has since been added to that older solo album, but it's also out there on their, on its own. And what is especially cool about it is that he created a groundbreaking video for that song that you have to see to believe it. I don't know if you know this, after music, well, during Devo and then afterwards, Jerry primarily made his living as a video and commercial director. And so this video for I'm Gonna Pay You Back is a fantastic work of art. You've gotta see it. In fact, obviously you can find it on YouTube, but you can also find it directly on his website and the link to his website is in the show description here. So please check it out afterwards. He's very proud of this work and he should be. He is a groundbreaking artist in so many ways. So beyond that, we also talk about basically all the albums, a lot of the videos, we talk about his directing career. We talk about his wine career. We talk about 80s movie soundtracks. We talk about David Bowie, Brian Eno. We talk about the mysterious death of his brother, Bob Two a few years ago. So anyways, a little bit of everything in here, but I think if you love Devo, you will enjoy this conversation. He's the best. Anyway, here he is. I feel like we need to begin by, by you explaining Jihad, Jihad Jerry. What what sparked <laughs> this concept, this idea? I mean, Devo is known for their concepts. This is a bold one. Why do this? Well, I you know I decided on a um, a particularly transgressive alter ego mm -hmm. just to get people's um, blood moving. You know, because yes. obviously Devo had been put on ice for years and years and years. Mark wasn't interested in collaborating he wasn't you know he was saying no to shows over and over and then along comes bush and this rightward purge in america of democratic rule of law in favor of plutocracy mm -hmm. and at the time it seemed horrific although in retrospect now it seems like kindergarten Child's play yes yeah, child's play. <laughs> yeah. and then i watched that completely you know, unconvincing, transparently false, ginned up, 
run up to the Iraq war mm -hmm. where they even turned Colin Powell mm -hmm. into a, uh, you know, a trained, uh, um, you know, salesman. Yes. Uh, with the weapons destruction and the yellow cake. And I couldn't take it anymore. So I started imagining, you know, in the wake of everything that happened and being bombarded by these radical Islamic jihadists, that I would become Jihad Jerry and mine is not a holy war. You know, I'm a guy that's like in his 60s wearing a stupid Sam the Sham in the Pharaoh's turban and saying that, you know, my jihad is one against stupidity, which is a war on stupidity right. as useless and futile as the war on drugs. Because <laughs> clearly, clearly we've doubled and tripled down 10 times over on stupidity. You know, I was just going to say, who would have thought when you thought it, when this, because I think that album's what, like 13 years old now, but more, it's more it's 16 okay. years old, 16. So it's being refreshed now. And we are, like you said, 10 times dumber than we were oh, yeah. then. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> it's, it's clearly over. Um, yes. I mean, you watch movies like idiocracy and team America mm -hmm. that you used to belly laugh at. Mm -hmm. And, uh, it's not funny. No. It's just almost like a predictive prescription for what was about to happen. Yeah. 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 And to think that those movies were made under, during relatively or comparatively mellower, more sensible times. Yeah. So, okay. So the new single is I'm going to pay you back. And right. it's because here's the deal. When I, I read something somewhere of you saying, nah, I don't know if I, I probably will retire Jihad, Jihad Jerry. I don't know if I need to do it anymore, but I'm guessing the current temperature of the country forced you to <laughs> relaunch Jerry back into yeah. the mainstream with this too. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I'm a masochist. Uh, I mean, Jihad didn't get the love needless to say back when I put that album out in 2005. Mm -hmm. You know, all the uh, good red-blooded Americans who were making fun of me and hating, hating mm -hmm. on me. And, and, of course, people of Muslim connection, you know, death threats, because uh, mm -hmm. there's no sense of humor in fundamentalism of any type, right? Mm -hmm. Whether it's Christian, Jewish, or Muslim. True. You know, the fundamentalists, they're, quote, dead serious in more ways yes. than one. And what's funny is in the 16 ensuing years, it's become almost 
acute nostalgic character jihad Jerry. And nobody's offended anymore they just snicker you know yeah. and yeah. and and of course you know i've always been an audio visual multimedia person that's how devo yeah. started and i directed those videos as part of the concept of devo we you know mark and i knew what we wanted to do and and did it until mm-hmm. you know, conceived and thought out consciously and so I I miss all that and I miss, you know, being able to create, right? So I I went back to the beginning when our music and videos were were art. It yeah. was sound and vision, right? There was no MPV, yeah. it wasn't promo for a record company. It was a piece of art. Yeah. So I went back to that. I have no delusions about being this septuagenarian that's gonna get on mainstream radio or something with the, I'm gonna pay you back. Mm-hmm. But I did something that pleased me, and I worked with a CGI artist that I've known for years that I really respect and love, Davy Force. And I did something going back to my roots, which was a creative music and video amalgam. Yes. And I really liked the result. I really liked the look of the video because the video is especially impressive. I was yeah, knocked Davey, out by that. Right. Davey and I had been talking about that a long time. He had been exploring deep learning programs and AI to manipulate live action at 30 frames per second. Mm. And he got a look that that you might have seen in stills or something that it's almost like a TikTok thing yeah. or Andy Warhol taken into the future, you mm. know, his, his uh, photo silkscreen series in the 80s. Mm. And that's exactly what I wanted to do is bring it to life. So the G.I. Jerry exists in this Marvel comic book uh, dimension where it's timeless. So G.I. Jerry could have more adventures in the future with that same look. It's a world that I wanted to create. And I did. So (laughs) I'm happy about that. And, of course, the gatekeepers don't let it onto the big platforms, but it's gotten about 300,000 views on YouTube, 98% thumbs up. Yeah. I mean, what gets 98% thumbs up, you know? And you know Almost how snarky everybody is and how they love to, you know, yeah. just to criticize and pick on and uh-huh. and go for it. Well, clearly this entertained people. They were not bored yeah. and they yeah. like to watch it over and over. So it has that instant repeatability. Yes, yes. What What is the... I mean, what can you do with this project of yours? Can you tour? Yeah, Are you going question. to tour? <laughs> good question. I would love to go out. I mean, maybe it's completely delusional, but I would love to just open for, you know, bands that have a following and they're sure. in the new. Just open with a 45-minute set or a half-hour set of Jihad Jerry. Yeah. I mean, I have the people that want to play live, you know, that love to play live, ready to do it. I mean, Steve Bartek from Oingo Boingo yes. would do it. Yes. You know, Josh Freeze would do it. I'm ready. Yeah. You know, and it would be wonderful. It would. I, I'm watching this video, which is, like, I, like you said, it, it's, it sells the song 10 times more. You listen to the song and it's one thing. And when you watch it with the video and the concept, it really brings it to right. life. And you right. listen to that whole album. What were you going to say? No, you're right. Yeah. Okay. It's, it needs the video because that's yes. part of the intention. You know, it is, um, it's, that's the idea. <laughs> yes. So I'm imagining Jihad Jerry going with your track record of audio and visual 
merging together, doing, like you said, some kind of short 45 minute set that's bringing it all together and really putting across the message. And you've got your, your turban on and everything like that. I hope, so is there going to be more, are you planning another album for this or are you going to, what are you going to do? Maybe an EP, maybe an EP. I mean, albums are irrelevant anyway, but um, I have, you know, more songs in the hopper. Good. And the next song I'm going to record is called the invisible man. Okay. Uh, as Good. Not Jerry. Good. And, and with a, with a video in that same world that, cool. that Davey helped me create with the AI, Yeah. you know, program. Okay. So one of the things, one of the many things I think Devo is most known for is their, the concept. And I don't mean a concept album, but just having a concept in general, the idea of de-evolution, which has obviously been proven out, right. as we've just been saying, and uh, and Jihad Jerry, do you? Yeah, um, it was an alternate worldview, you know. Yeah, yes. they didn't form the songs. You know. Yes, yes, and I. Do you see any other bands doing that today? Because I really don't. Not to the level, to the degree, no. to the amount of of. Uh, I don't know, like uh, in uh, investment that you guys did base an entire career off of it. I no, don't see people doing that. No, not at all. It yeah. would be interesting. It'd be wonderful uh, because I do hear things that sound great, you know, that uh-huh. like you really, you think, Oh, you know, that's actually good music. Like yes. that's real music in this world. So devoid of real music. It all sounds like the same two producers mm-hmm. on the same computers created yes. everything. And you can't tell one artist from another. And it's all rehashed, tired stuff that you've heard before. But once in a while, something great comes along. Mm-hmm. But then it t- turns out to be a single effort. And you listen to the rest of the stuff they've done. And it's nothing like the thing you liked. Mm-hmm. So there isn't a body of work informed by some idea. Yes. You know, it isn't like an artist had a big point of view or a vision they were going for. Yeah. They just hooked up with a good producer or something. And, and there's nothing behind it. There's nothing really behind it. And it's yeah. just too bad because yeah. if one, per, one band would do that, mm-hmm. people would quit talking about the death of rock and roll. Yeah. It would be back. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> I agree that you don't see artists. I don't know. Well, maybe I'm just. Maybe I'm thinking of mainstream artists, artists saying something. For instance, I when I, I mean, all growing up, whenever I'd listen to Devo, it almost felt like I wasn't. In most cases, I I felt like I wasn't smart enough to even know exactly what you guys were saying or where you were coming from. I mean, I remember the video for Freedom of Choice.
and it gave me nightmares. That was my first real introduction to Devo, and I'm like 10 years old. And uh, <laughs> and the aliens and the dog and everything was giving me nightmares. And then you're telling me freedom from choice is what I really want. And I'm like, man, that, I don't know what that even means. But if Devo's saying it, that must be some really high-level shit here that I got to pay attention to. What does that mean, freedom of freedom of from choice? And now it's become more obvious than ever what we meant. Yeah, yeah. Because that's I what know. people are choosing. They yeah. are, they are, they are um, choosing against themselves and against their own interests. Yes, yes. Yeah, I mean, so you Jeff, realize why now. Why should billionaires have to pay any tax? Why should billionaires have to pay any tax? I think it's great they don't pay any tax. I'd like to not pay any tax. <laughs> <laughs> it's so wrong. It's so backwards. I know it wasn't until I grew up and was an adult and saw the world in a different way that I understood that what you were, you weren't telling me necessarily what I wanted. You were telling me that what human beings think, say they want is the freedom from choice. And I, right, uh, we were warning I, people. We were warning yes, people. Yes, you about were. conformity. <laughs> you were. Were you, were you, you directed almost all of those old videos, right? Yeah. 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 Where did the, so I have a lot of questions around some of these hallmarks of the Devo concepts. When you're yeah. doing the freedom of choice video and you're in the, you're the aliens and everything, who thought of that? Did you think of that? What was the yeah. thinking? Well, I mean, we always considered ourselves aliens. And so I thought, well, it's about time to be literal about it. Really. <laughs> You know, we, we worked with um, Rick Baker, who wasn't uh, really, huge, yeah, wasn't a huge star yet, and yeah. uh, it was his studio that made the heads for us. No way! Time, back at a time when uh, the life cast for those heads was a a real traumatic experience. You were inside <laughs> this plaster thing with two little Ooh. nozzles coming out of your nose, with your yes. only contact with the outside world. So it was like some extreme bondage and discipline, frightening, <laughs> claustrophobic experience. And as it, you know, as it hardens, it heats up. Oh. And it took 45 minutes back then to be inside that. 45 oh. minutes. Yeah. It's giving me the creeps <laughs> just thinking about it. I'm getting claustrophobic it was, it was imagining it. Take. It was hard to take. Oh, man. Did you, were you getting it? Now, I know since Devo, you've, primarily made a living directing other music videos for bands right. and commercials. Yeah, for a while. Mm -hmm. Okay. Do you still do that? Well, I would, if somebody let me, uh, there isn't uh, much of a business there. I mean, obviously the top artists like, you know, the Drake's and Beyonce's of the world go to the same handful of directors that yeah. stuck up all the oxygen in the room. Like if there's any real budget, Here's these six guys to get to do it all, right? Yeah. And then yeah. after that, you know, if you get $5,000 today to do a video, you're happening. Yeah. But yeah, those kids, all they want is like a young director, you know, out of USC, somebody with, you know, tattoos and piercings, mm -hmm. you know, uh, that's, but, you know, I, I'm a victim of ageism. They, yeah. It wouldn't matter how cool my idea was or how, uh, adept I am technique wise at knowing how to light, where to put the camera, what kind of lenses, you know, how to edit. It doesn't matter that I know all that stuff. Uh, 
It's just I'm not cool. Ugh. <laughs> People don't know what cool is. Well, Were you getting approached back then to direct other bands' videos? I, I yeah. imagine they were yeah. so groundbreaking. I'm imagining people like, I don't know who, Oingo Boingo, coming to you and saying, we're soul brothers here. Will you produce, will you direct an out, uh, a video for us? Yeah. Well, it didn't happen with Oingo Boingo because that would never, Danny Elfman would have never done that. <laughs> Being um, the egomaniac he is. But, um, uh-huh. but I mean, he was visual and he came from that background and he was in a, a famous underground movie, the, the Forbidden Planet. I mean, Forbidden Zone. Forbidden, Forbidden Zone. Zone. Yeah. That his brother, Rick, directed. He was great in that, actually. I don't know if you've ever seen Forbidden Zone, but Danny Elfman's great in it. It's classic. Yes. <laughs> Doing his Cab Calloway imitation, but he's great. Uh, yes. Anyway, uh, yeah, it's, it's like the first band that came to me was The Cars. Oh. The Cars. Uh-huh. Yeah. Because they were not a visual conceptual band at all. Uh-huh. And in fact, they, they hated the idea of music videos. You know, a lot of bands back then really, you know, cast side eye at videos. It was like, that's not cool. That's not rock and roll, baby. That's bullshit, you know? But then they realized, oh, we got to make videos, Yeah, right? So who can we Our trust? sure did, yeah. And so Rick Kokasik thought, well, you know, we can trust the guy from Devo because he understands what it's like to be in a band mm-hmm. and he won't make us do foolish things. Ha ha ha. But, uh, <laughs> but no, I didn't. I, you know, we worked together and, you know, I wrote a lot of ideas for them and they, Rick picked the one he liked. So nice. You know, I, have and I a shot question. two videos with them. What's you know, that? You, which ones were they again? Well, unfortunately they weren't great songs. It was from their, to me, least good record. It was from the Panorama record. And uh, it was, uh, it was touch and go, hmm. which was their quote single, which was the most not single single. And then it was Panorama, which was like a, almost a five minute cut. Hmm. It was the title cut of the record. And of course they didn't want to spend much money. Right. Hmm. You know, back then nobody wanted to spend much money no. on videos. Yeah. And so I, you know, I flew to Boston and, spent two weeks there and we did what we could. And, you know, I, I look at it now, it's a, it's a great historical keepsake on those guys. Totally. totally. And they never looked better. They caught them in their youth, you know? Yes. That was, uh, and I'm imagining making something interesting out of not a lot. Um, yeah. <laughs> would have been a hallmark of Devo in general, whether it's musically yeah. or visually or whatever. Yeah. You know? Yeah, and those yeah. guys were notoriously boring live. I mean, yes. great recording artists, great recording artists, but everybody said, well, the cliche, it's like watching paint dry. And sure enough, when I was in Boston and hanging out with them, they played a concert in Boston. And of course, I went uh-huh. and I couldn't believe how boring it was. <laughs> you shut your eyes and you thought, you know, this sounds just like the record. Uh-huh. And So why am I here? Was. <laughs> yeah, you might as well just put on the record. Yes. There was no, they didn't add any dimension to it. And they just stood in place. Oof. There was no oh, energy. Well, and Ben was very good live. Ben was a oh, better singer than Rick. Yes, he was. I, I became friends with Ben. He was, uh, whatever, the, the Romeo of the group. Yes, I he mean, was. The women were lining up for that yep. guy. I couldn't believe what I saw backstage. <laughs> <laughs> I believe it. I mean, speaking coming from you too, one of the 
Devo were legendary live acts. I've only seen you once, and it was probably eight, nine years ago. I live in Denver, and you came through. It, I think it was part of like the state fair. You know how, uh, like, when there's the state fair oh, is going wait, on. Oh, I remember week. we played in this horrible place. Yes, it was like a metal. They normally have, um, you know, like stock shows there. That's right. That's yes. right. It was the sound was atrocious. The it was horrible. The makeshift stage was awful. The way it was put, yes. the way it was placed, it was yes. the worst circumstances. And yes. didn't who else was on the bill? Wasn't it like the Flaming Lips or something? Or no, it was. Uh, I don't think I saw no. anyone but you guys. I can't remember who opened okay. that, but I came in time for you guys, and I was right near the front. And I've always wanted to see Debo. And you're right; it's in just the worst possible venue for your band yeah. in yeah. this place. Terrible. Yes, terrible. Yes. Um, hopefully, you guys get it together. Now, uh, Mark doesn't seem to want to do much. I'm guessing that's because he's got a successful film scoring career and doesn't need or want to deal with Devo, not on a regular basis. Right. That's, that's pretty much what happened. He was only interested in, in uh, sitting there and scoring. Yeah. Yeah. Are you guys cool these days? I don't even know. <laughs> You'd have to ask him. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I think Got he it. thinks he's cool. <laughs> <laughs> Probably. Okay. I want to ask you, uh, I have always had, I have this theory. And you mentioned Oingo Boingo because they fall into this too. You guys and Oingo Boingo were featured on a lot of movie soundtracks in the 80s. There's heavy yeah. metal. There's Dr. Detroit, which I want to know the story about that one. There's Fright yeah. Night. And I have a theory that band, fringe bands like yours and Oingo Boingo, who the record label understand that they want them to be bigger but they're not quite catching on, you know, hugely, not in the millions. Yeah. Keep putting bands like you on movie soundtracks in the hope right. of just something catches, something hooks somewhere to keep right. this band vibrant. Do I, am I on to something with this theory? Well, that's exactly what they were doing. Okay. Right. It was like low risk promotion. Yes. Yes. That's it. Nobody was getting tons of money for being in a, uh, uh, having a song in a movie then. <laughs> you know, the licensing deals were minuscule. Yeah, there's band, like uh, you guys, Oingo Boingo, the Tubes were on some sure different, you know, fee wave. And I, these are all bands that are so conceptual. They're fantastic, but they're not mainstream. But they're right. not so weird that we can't sell them. And so let's put, let's attach them to a movie and hope yeah. that something good comes of this. Right. Sure. sure. Yeah. What's the Doctor Detroit story? Because my understanding, I think, is that Dan reached out to you directly to write the theme. Is that true or no? Don't you stop? Don't you wonder why life itself comes in and takes you by surprise? Don't you try to? Time to curly doctor. 
No, what I remember is Bob Weiss, who I'd met in the past, who was a producer, huh. uh, like a movie producer. Well, he was friends with Dan. And of course, we had been on Saturday Night Live and Dan and, and John Belushi loved us. And Sure. And it was Bob Weiss's idea. And I guess Dan went for it. Okay. And okay. so... Bob, Bob Weiss is the one that contacted me and uh, Elliot Roberts, our manager, and said, hey, we want Devo to write a song for this movie, Dr. Detroit. Mm. So, okay. you know, because Dan was in it, we didn't think the movie was very good. <laughs> it's a terrible uh, movie, but it's a great yeah. soundtrack. <laughs> we just thought, what's Dan doing here with this character? Uh-huh. <laughs> yes. And so we we did our best. and. Yeah. And I was suckered because Bob Weiss said, and you can direct the video. Oh. Like, that was a new idea then, you know, like, mm-hmm. to do a video, music video that would promote the movie. Mm-hmm. So you had to use clips from the movie, had to be 50% of the video. That was uh, their little rule back then. Okay. And so, uh, you know, something I'd never done before. And I, I worked up a concept where, okay, how do you integrate Devo with that idea, mm-hmm, right? Of mm-hmm. Showing these clips. And, and we did it in a humorous way that kind of was a little more seamless than what you usually see. Yeah. And it yeah. worked. You do, It does. I love those songs. I, anytime Devo pops up, I'm, I'm happy. Okay. Um, let's talk about the sort of the trajectory of the sound of the band. My favorite Devo song, I think, is um, That's Good. that sounds like the hit that should have been there's whip yeah. it which i'm i mean whip it is great of course but for a devo fan a devotee they know that that's like the 50th most interesting or good devo song and when i hear <laughs> that's good i just think this is what should have been a giant hit yeah. when yeah. i've always wondered when you were writing and recording that that's good are you thinking to yourself we've got something here well you know, Devo progressed from a band that didn't use any sequencers and used all real instruments, but sounded like we were a machine, right? Oh, yes. To a band that was really being controlled by machines. Mm-hmm. So the album, Oh No, It's Devo, just on the cusp of taking a wrong turn, but was a great kind of like apex between man and machine. Yes. And by that time, the atmosphere culturally had turned dark enough because of Reagan 
and this empowerment of the evangelicals and everything that was going on. Mm-hmm. And Devo's experience, both culturally and in the music business, which was, you know, just shark infested, you know, snakes. Mm-hmm. There's a dark record, which I like. Mm-hmm. And I thought we were onto something with a number of songs on that record. I yep. loved, I loved Peekaboo. Yes. I loved. Yes. I loved. Oh, that's good. Yes. I loved um, um, explosions. Mm-hmm. We like explosions, and uh, and she's out of sync, and we were we had the sound going. It was a little more, a little more techno, yeah. a little more aggressive, a little darker in the vocals and in the progressions. So that's good. Was the happiest sounding song on the record in a way, mm-hmm. but it was great. It was, I liked it. Um, I did too. I remember you performing it on Letterman. That clip is wild. It's out there on YouTube. And I remember you performing it on Square Pegs, which makes perfect sense. I mean, if there were a TV show that should have been married to Devo is Square Pegs. How did that happen? You know, I don't, I really don't remember except that um, in 1980, Bill Gerber, who was this young you know, go-getter, music manager, producer, who knew Elliot Roberts, he he joined Elliot Roberts Lookout Management specifically to try to propel Devo to a, a new position commercially. Mm-hmm. And we liked Bill because he was young and smart and dedicated to Devo. Mm-hmm. Whereas Elliot, you know, he'd already had all the success with Neil Young and, and Joni Mitchell and people from another era that he was... Yeah. submerged in, you know, yeah. and, and he didn't really, he understood Devo was, was a thing. And, mm-hmm. you know, he, he got that something was really going on there, but he didn't feel it personally mm-hmm. the way he was connected to Neil Young. Sure. So he was hoping Billy who did feel it personally would do something for us. Billy started doing things like that. Billy worked that deal. Okay. He's the one that went to the square pegs people. I mean, he was a Beverly Hills High graduate. His dad was a big agent, Roy Gerber. Roy Gerber helped bring the Beatles to Shea Stadium. You know, Billy grew up in the business, meeting every band 
everywhere, was yeah. every, every concert venue, knew every manager, every producer, every label exec in town. Yeah. So Billy was like 24 years old working Devo. Okay. And he knew the cast on, on Square Pegs. Mm -hmm. You know, and he'd had sex with the girls on Square Pegs. So <laughs> Lucky this guy, guy. Was just, you know, banging somebody new every night. So Yes. And it was, that was scary on that set. Let me tell you, you talk about. Why? You know, being, well, everybody, all the cast was like 10 years younger than us. Uh-huh. Right? And they were like snorting coke, fucking in the trailers. I mean, we were shocked. These kids were like <laughs> way gone. And wow. really, the girls were completely like, uh you know, forward and yeah. just precocious and flashing and, you know. Really? Say, hey, what are, you, what are you doing after? Yeah, what are you doing after this tonight? You know, like just, it was like a real Hollywood experience. Like everything you hear about the decadence, it was true. Wow. I want to ask so many specifics about that, but I won't uh, just to, for decorum. But I'm imagining Sarah Jessica Parker or Jamie Gertz. Tracy Nelson, I think, probably was having a Coke problem or so at that time. But uh, I'm imagining being propositioned by Jamie Gertz. And at that time, I would have been like, hell yes, because I love Jamie yeah. Gertz. <laughs> but, yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah. The show was created by Ann Beats, who had written for Saturday Night Live. That's and right. I wonder if she right. had a connection, too, with Dan and John and yeah. something may have been there. I wanted to ask you too, a movie that I like that's really uh, obscure is Prey TV. And you guys show up on there as Dove, a Christian rock band. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was fun. I could imagine. And I, it's such an inside joke. Whenever I watch that movie, I think, I wonder who's picking up on this. How did that one happen? Once again, uh, and I don't remember the producer's name on that one, but I'm thinking that Hal Willis had something to do with the music. Mm. It was originally called K God. Oh, okay. And they were forced to change it. And somebody had seen us open for ourselves as dubbed the band of love, part of our mass satire, where the audience didn't know it was us. And we're wearing those terrible, uh, like, mustard-colored Century 21 polyester suits. Century 21 was a real estate firm, and those were their real suits. And we just put you know, a, a, a Dove logo on the pocket and wore yes. those terrible visors that all the Christians wore with the, yeah. With the, yes. Oh, God. The green, <laughs> uh, yeah, the green filter. Yes. And white white loafers, you know, white <laughs> penny loafers. Uh, anyway, they had seen that and they go, okay, these guys are perfect. We got to, they got to be the release band on this TV show. Uh -huh. You know, K-Dog. And that, we were ready, right? It was like, sure. <laughs> you know, we already do this. <laughs> While you're going along, I mean, we've established that Devo deserved more and probably were too smart for their own good or for at least the, the, the masses to fully understand. Do you, are you feeling as yeah. it's going along, like people just don't get this? And I don't know. Like, is that what leads yeah. to changing the sound to be more synth pop by the time you get to shout or is that a natural progression? No. What's going on with you? It had nothing to do with responding to record company or responding to 
trends uh, on the radio, nothing like that. Uh, it just had to do with, uh, for a while, we would, because we were conceptual and because we were artists, and because Mark never met a new piece of technology he didn't fall in love with, you know, we didn't want to just repeat what we did. We Each album cycle had a new look, a yeah. new sound, and a new set of ideas, right? A new, like, lyrical theme, core, or whatever, on, on purpose. Like, that's what, that's what kept us excited as artists. Mm -hmm. So we weren't stagnant. Mm -hmm. But by the time it gets to Shout, that's where, you know, I, I hate Shout. Okay, mm -hmm. I've said it over and over in mm -hmm. interviews. It's where the Fairlight and Mark take over and it becomes this autocratic machine music. And it's not cool. It's I don't think it's good for Devo. It's no longer a marriage of us as players and artists mm -hmm. using machines. It was like the machines were using Devo. Yeah. And that it sounded good. sterile. And it sounded not interesting to me. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to go a different way with it. You know, I kept talking about caveman, spaceman, like let's use, let's use the Fairlight just for great, big, odd, almost surreal sci-fi sounds and maybe a sequencer line. And then let's play everything else and make it really big and open and crude. Mm. Right. But that wasn't about to happen. It was all layered and busy and fussy and tinkly, tinkly. And it just, you know, I did what I could, but it was like, it was laid out like, this is what I'm doing. You can either get on board or stay home. Yeah. yeah. And as the guy that founded Devo and as the guy that co-wrote 90% of the songs or wrote, you know, co-wrote or co-wrote 90% of the song, suddenly like, being dictated to was not even part of what Devo was about. Sure, sure. <laughs> and 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 I think the record sounds exactly like what I was bitching about. Yeah. You know, yeah. What I was concerned, what I was concerned with, and bummed about. So. so what's the what's the lay of the land then for Total Devo? Because four or five years pass, I remember so well seeing this the video for Disco Dancer. Not on MTV, it was on Night Tracks. 
on um, TNT or TBS or whatever it was. And I remember yeah. thinking, I haven't heard from Devo in a while. And that song is killer. You talk about the merging of the synths and the real instruments. Yeah. It's got such a great hook, that song. The rest of the album's a little spotty, but there are enough killer singles, that one in particular, to at least be the Trojan horse for people rediscovering Devo. What's going on with you guys at that time? Well, at that time, it was just me trying to keep Devo from the the grave. Hmm. So I, I spearheaded all that and found a small deal on a subsidiary of Capitol Records called Enigma Records, they just gotten an infusion of $50 million and they had some big success with some hideous Christian metal band. So they reached out to Devo when no major label would touch us uh-huh. and didn't give us much money, but guaranteed us a couple records. And, uh, you know, that was Devo just going back to the uh, basically garage level, you know, a small rehearsal room and writing songs and playing them without a bunch of production and without a bunch of machines. Yeah. Uh, I like, th- I like that song. Did it do, was it good enough? Did it, did you, were you happy with the re- response to that? I did like time? it. I, I liked, I liked what, um, I liked what, uh, the guy, what's his name? Uh, the, the guy that we met in New York, that was a DJ remixer producer, um, no, it, it was two. It was like two names that are the same. Like you know. Oh, Ivan, 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 Ivan. Thank you. Okay. It was Ivan, Ivan. We worked. Yeah. With. And I liked what Ivan, Ivan did. Yeah. And yeah. I wanted to do that. I wanted to work with him on a bunch of tracks, but you know, we didn't really have the money. Devo would have had to pay for that, and Mark wasn't interested in that. Yeah. You. T- so my understanding is that Bowie. Discovering you is pretty integral to getting Devo up and going and off the ground. And um, I obviously am a huge Bowie fan, as you can tell from my my uh, backdrop here. Was it coincidence then that the first album is produced by Eno and the second is by Ken, Ken Sharp? Or is that, is that part of the plan? Ken Scott. Uh, oh, the, Ken well, Scott. First, yes, sorry. Ken Sharp. Bowie, Power Bowie, was guy. Supposed to produce the, Bowie was supposed to produce the first record. But he kept... He kept delaying it because of all his projects. Hmm. And then he had this movie, something, I, w- I don't think it was called Just a Gigolo, but it was something yes. a gigolo. Mm-hmm. One of the most terrible movies. I mean, because always been in some good movies and he's done some great stuff. Uh-huh. I mean, The Man Who Fell to Earth being the best, but uh-huh. this gigolo thing was, <laughs> and he, even he disavows it uh-huh. uh, you know, or, or did up until his death. I've never seen anyway, it, but it pops up on YouTube sometimes. Yeah. I always mean to watch it. So Devo got tired of being put on the back burner, and he understood that. And he said, listen, come to New York, meet Brian Eno. You guys, you guys can go to uh, Germany and record where we recorded low with Connie Plank. Mm. So we met Brian, and Mark and I liked him a lot. And uh, we always liked his, what he was doing. But in person, we really clicked with him. So we flew to Germany in February of 78 and worked at Connie Plunk's studio out in the middle of nowhere, outside of a little town called Neunkirchen or something, uh, <laughs> like an hour or so out of Cologne. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, the rest is history. Yeah. And then, and then in 79, 
everybody was telling us we needed a producer. We, we were about to just go on our own. And I wish we had, because, uh, you know, somebody suggested Ken Scott. We met with a number of producers and we, we knew of Ken's work with David and uh, it just didn't work with Devo. He took all the primal raw energy from Devo on songs that were just killer live that people would go nuts for. And he stripped it out and neutered it, like yeah. deballed it. And it was you know, really disappointing. I've heard you say that you don't like that album either, Duty Now for the Future. Well, I don't like the recording. I love the songs. Yeah. Oh. But I mean, he butchered my Smart Patrol song. Butchered yes. It. Yeah. And live, that brings down the house. And you'd never know it hearing it on that record. Yeah, I could see that. So when Freedom of Choice comes around, you guys primarily produce that one yourself, right? Yeah, and but that worked out because, uh, you know, it was uh, Bob uh, Margulov who had worked with Minimogs before and had worked with Stevie Wonder. And... Uh, and you know, in our minds, what Diva was doing is robot R&B. That's what we were doing on purpose. Nice. We, were, we were cleaning out our Akron cycle of 40 songs we'd lived with since 74. Uh -huh. And now we wanted to do something more with a R&B feel and a R&B foot between the bass and drums, mm. not rock and roll so much. And I had been learning to play bass on a Moog. So we decided once we were going to use a Moog bass that we wanted to work with Bob because mm. he knew how to record drums and Moog bass really well. Mm -hmm. and, it, and it was a good marriage. Yes. And I like Total how comeback. dry that record is. The louder you play it, the better it sounds because <laughs> it's so, the frequencies are so dialed in and, and, and the kick drum and snare and bass are so dry. Yes. That, it does, you know, you can just pump it up. <laughs> it's so good. I love it. Um, is Through Being Cool a response to the success that came from Whip It?
not consciously, it was uh, it was kind of like our no more Mr. Nice Guy. We mm. we were so freaked at the direction of the country, so freaked at um, the rise of the evangelicals on TV and, and the empowerment Reagan gave them in Washington to set policy. Mm-hmm. Again, an encroachment of First Amendment rights, the, all the rattling of the cages that, that supposedly they were going to end abortion. Obviously, it took another 40 years, and now Trump and his uh, right-wing Supreme Court will do it. Yeah. But um, it's like, okay, you're going to get to do what you want, but why is that what you wanted to do? Like, yeah. 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 Can't people and them do what they want to do, and you can have 12 kids if you want them? You know, like, can't we live and let live here? No, not with intolerant tyrants. Mm-hmm. Now we have the tyranny of the minority, and we felt like that then, 40 years ago. And so through being cool, it was like us going after the ninnies and the twits mm-hmm. <laughs> and all Got the it. put upon people that we identified with and who identified with us. Right. Basically, this was the beginning of the LGBTQ community out there. that didn't have the name yet. Yeah. But the misfits around the country that embraced Debo and we embraced them, the outsiders, the disenfranchised people mm-hmm. that latched on to Debo. Because Devo gave them a voice. Yes, and that's what that's that who that song was for. Okay, it was a call to arms. Yes, <laughs> that's how it rang to me. And then getting ready to talk to you, I read somewhere that it was you guys saying we're through being cool because we got really famous from Whip It, and that's not our style. And so we're going back to the underground. And I thought that's not exactly how I've always read that song, but maybe it is. I don't know. I don't know who said that from Devo, but I did. Okay, <laughs> I was. Who knows? Um, okay. Time out for one second. I we have Patreon supporters. Time and, out for um, fun. What's that? Time, Time out, out for, for fun. fun. Yeah. <laughs> so we have t- Patreon supporters, and I always tell them who I'm interviewing, and if they want to submit questions, they can. And sure. we had a couple people submit questions for you. Uh, one of my listeners is from Hudson, Ohio. I like Hudson. He wants to know, this is Joe Powers, and I had a kind of a, I talked to Chris Butler from the uh, waitresses a couple years ago, who was at Kent State, which I know was a pivotal moment for you as well. He was wondering how out of nowhere that scene produces you guys, waitresses, pretenders, Chrissy Hind anyway. What was the scene like? Was it really supportive? Was it competitive? Per Ubu comes out of this area. What else? What was going on then? I never felt it was competitive. And what it was is that there was this amazing, you know, little community of outsider artists that didn't fit into the prevailing anti-intellectual blue-collar industrial culture that we were immersed in. I mean, Kent State University was an anomaly plunked in the middle of like Trumpism, right? And we were hated, but you seek each other out because you're hated. Mm-hmm. So everybody that is an alternative to that knows each other. Yes. It's a tight knit thing. Not necessarily like tight friends, but aware and um, friendly. And I never felt competitive. I don't know if anybody else did because everybody, what was great is everybody was pursuing self-expression it's like there was no real connection between what Perubu was doing and what Debo was doing stylistically or what the or what Chrissy Hines started doing musically with the pretenders 
or Rachel Sweet or the waitresses. It's like we never we each felt like everybody was doing really well at what they wanted to do, which was fine with everyone. Right. It's like yeah. more power to you. Go for it. Yeah. One of my favorite music books is called From the Velvets to the Voidoids. And it's basically about the CBGB scene mm -hmm. back in the day. And there's what and I don't remember who wrote that book. I should have looked it up before we got on. But um, one thing that they talk about in the book that kind of surprised me was that there was this scene going on in, in New York, obviously. And then there's this other little scene going on with you guys in Perubu, who yeah. are sort of attached in some way to see the CBGB scene. And I want, I've always wondered, is that a stretch that that writer was taking on his own? Cause he wants to talk about Perubu and Devo, or is that real? Were you guys making trips to CBGB to play there a lot? Well, I certainly did. I pretended to be our manager and I talked Hilly Crystal into letting Devo play there. Nice. And the day I visited, he said, why don't you stick around? Uh, the damned are coming in. And I went, really? And I got to see the damned that night. Oh. Yeah. In their, in their prime. Yes. And I loved, you know, the songs that they, they had then. In yes. Early 77, right? Yeah. New Rose and New Rose, which yeah. had come out in 76 in England, but not we didn't hear it in America until like February 77, I think. Yeah. And so I was I was watching them in March 77. And it wow. was yeah, it was amazing. But yeah, I mean, what happened is, you know, you, you know, the the hundredth monkey book, right? It's like these the, the big cities get the hype, but whatever artistic groundbreaking edgy trend is going on that gets print, you know, gets some kind of coverage. It's going on a lot more places simultaneously and nobody knows it. Mm -hmm. uh, that was us in Akron, right? We, we were doing our thing starting in 74, getting serious in 74 at the same time as Richard Hell, you know, the voidoids and I mean, everything that was going on, right. Mm -hmm. The talking heads, Devo and Akron and the Perubu and Cleveland were doing the same thing in our right. own way. And then we become aware of each other. We weren't yeah. copying anything. We no already way. had a fully formed identity and a, you know, a catalog of songs. Yeah. Uh, and we were ready. You know, when we went to CBGB's, people were seeing something that blew them away. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm of the staunch belief that Devo belongs in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame for this. Yeah. I know that some people say that doesn't matter, but no one, you guys are ground zero for what New Wave is, in my opinion. The mixture we of were, the guitars and the synths, the we way you new. did it. We were the new in New Wave. Yes, we new that's, <laughs> that's it. That's it. And who, so who who is the, what is the Rock Hall for, if not to celebrate the bands who kicked off entire mo uh, movements and well, that's exactly. what innovators that that innovators that that withstood the test of time yes and and so you know i've heard stories about why why devo isn't in the rock and roll hall of fame and tell me why I can, but, you know, well it involves uh, you know what you might think is that an obstructionist in the you know at the top of the heap there oh who might that be i wonder yeah. Well, we won't name names. <laughs> yeah. Let's say the there has been a change of leadership there. 
Yes. Uh, Bob, I mean, John Sykes. Now he's in charge. And John Sykes, I don't think he has any animus towards Devo. He started with Bob Pittman. He started at MTV. Mm-hmm. And they came to us when they had no programming and basically massaged us and begged us for our videos because yeah. we were some of the only people that had anything in the can. That's right. So, you know, we helped them and they helped us. I think you're right. Um, okay. The other, one of the other Patreon supporters is Nick Bamback and he's a huge fan. He feels as strongly as I do about the rock hall too. Um, he had a couple of questions for you. One in particular, we talked about the music videos that you guys were making or that you were making. Do you have a favorite of the ones you directed? Maybe it's one people don't even know. And similarly, is there one that was particularly difficult to make? Well, of the Devo videos, actually this goes beyond Devo. I think I've directed a total of about 70 music videos. Um, 70, seven, zero? Seven, zero, yeah. Wow. Because between 1986 and say 2004, I was directing for other bands, right? Yeah. And then he, that hit a peak somewhere around between 96 and 2000. I did a lot of them. And Devo thrown in there, and all things notwithstanding, my favorite video I ever directed is a Devo video called Beautiful World. Yes. That's my favorite video I ever did. That's a great song too. It deserves a good video. That's great. Was there one in particular that was difficult or especially like you don't, you've talked openly about the albums you don't look back fondly on or their videos too? I suppose the only one that, you know, was like an afterthought because um, I, I can't remember. We couldn't afford the ideas that I wanted to do or Mark wanted to do. And we had to quickly put something together. We shot Post postmodern man in the <laughs> desert in Palm Springs on a shoestring budget.
you know, and while I liked what we were going after, I don't feel that the video really, in terms of execution, Got made it. it clear what we were going after. Okay. That makes sense. I like that video too. Um, okay. Number two, since one of the other businesses you're in is the wine business, are you still doing right. wine? Yes. Uh, yeah, I just released my ninth vintage of uh, my ninth release of the 2019 vintage of my uh, Sonoma Coast Pinot Noir. Wow. I uh, just, just released it two weeks ago. Is that your primary source of income today? Wine? Not at all. Oh. It, it, you know, the, there's, a, there's a cliched joke in the wine business. How do you make a fortune in the wine business? You spend 10 times that fortune. <laughs> uh, it's very hard to make any money. Uh, being, being in the, you know, once you involve alcohol, you know, mm. and drugs and distributors and federal law and state law, the last person to make any money, just like in the music business, is the content provider. So if you actually make the wine, everybody else makes money before you do. And, you know, I'm, I'm a small producer. I'm a boutique producer. I only produced between my rosé and my white wine and my Pinot Noir, I only produced 420 cases. Mm. That's small. Mm. You know, you have to get up to about 5,000 cases before you can make any real money. Interesting. And so it's all about, it's all about marketing, as you might guess. Yes, it's like marketing is the end all be all of the whole culture. But in the wine business, people don't know, 99% of the people that drink wine, they don't even know what good wine is. They're just, they start to believe that that's good because they're told that's good. So they think they should like it. So they do. That's um, true for everything. They, that's true for movies, music, books, everything. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and, and and believe me, they those are never the wines, the ones they buy. They're never the ones in a blind tasting that they pick. Mm -hmm. So in a blind tasting, they'll, they'll pick better wine and they go, oh, I don't even know this one, never heard of it, right? <laughs> and so that's my, you know, I'm the brand waiting to be discovered. Yeah. And it's a tough road to hoe. You know, if, I imagine. if LeBron James, you know, on a TV show, said he was drinking the 50 by 50 Sonoma Coast Pinot Noir. Boom, I'm I'm home free. <laughs> we just need to get in front of the right people. I'll see what yeah. I can do. I'll talk to LeBron's or the people. Wrong people. <laughs> <laughs> or the wrong ones, that's right. Um, okay, just a couple more questions. I want yeah. to know your philosophy. You're famous for your unique covers. Um, are you experienced? Obviously, Satisfaction, Secret Agent Man. Let's talk. Let's talk satisfaction. Did you have to get clearance from the Stones to even do that? Because my understanding is that they are very litigious.
Well, everything was very litigious back then, and you're right, they were, they were particularly so. And because we changed something so radically from the original song, it wasn't, back then, it wasn't considered a cover, it was considered a parody. Oh, okay. And so the lawyers were on our ass, and Warner said, we're not putting this on the record unless you get a written release from the writers, right? Mm -hmm. So Mark and I flew to New York and met Mick Jagger and had to play it for him. Because, you know, musically, it had nothing to do with the original. Sure. And we even changed a few minor words. Mm -hmm. And luckily, you know, Mick's like a businessman, right? And Mick thought, oh, I've been hearing a lot about this band Bowie like some, hell, this could make me money because he wasn't going to give up any of the publishing no matter how different it was. Mm -hmm. So it was going to make him money. Yeah. We would get money from our particular master recording right. as part of a few cents you get per record sold for any individual track. And so he, he goes, I like it. I like it. You know, and we, we were like Bill and Ted's great adventure. Like we're not worthy. And, uh, you know, and that was that, um, yeah. and we, we okay. put it on the record and yeah. Yeah. I always wondered what the story was with that. Who came up with that idea? Who comes up with any of these covers? Well, unlike most Devo stuff, which was a result of um, discussion and conscious concepts and verbal verbalizing ideas, that started as a jam. And it started because my brother, who's now deceased, Bob, two in the band, Bob Casale, yep. he started playing the figure. <laughs> using like three strings. And I said, oh, I really like that. And, hmm. you know, I really like that. And Mark's listening to it and he's going, that's, that's cool. That's great. And Alan Myers starts this whack drum beat with the snare on the one. Hmm. And I start laughing <laughs> because I can't even find the one to start with. <laughs> and so it's just the two of them playing. And I go, it's like robot reggae. So I do my impression on the base of robot reggae. Yes. No yet. So I just go, Alan goes whack. And I go, whack. And that's all I was doing. And Mark started singing paint it black over mm. it. Just spontaneously. Okay. And it didn't really work. And Bob stops. Bob Casale stops and says, no, no, no. Sing satisfaction. So we started up again and he starts singing Satisfaction and we all just start laughing. This is great. Yes. And so then, you know, I just made the musical change that made it easier for Mark to sing Satisfaction. So when he got to I try and I try and I try, 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 uh -huh. it was kind of referencing or ghosting the actual song. right? Oh. And then... Bob Mothersbaugh started going do, 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 on single strings on his guitar. Uh -huh. And Mark started doubling that on synth and then playing fifths and then playing sevenths. Uh -huh. And we just couldn't stop. We just played it over and over and over, pushed the TAC four track, recorded it. And we're just so proud of ourselves. We thought, <laughs> how ballsy to cover yes. satisfaction. One yes. of the greatest rock and roll songs ever done. And it was just an accident. 
Yeah. And whose we, idea we, was the triangle? It the sounds triangle? like a triangle in there. Is that not a triangle? Oh, it's a cowbell. Oh, sure. Oh, okay. Okay. And I was the, imagining and it. What the triangle sound is a synth. I, okay. That's what I was. That's, that's my question. Was that a synth or that's was that not, real? That's a sound. That's a sound on an ARP odyssey. Okay. That's what I wanted to know. Um, by the way, didn't Bob, it was so sad when he died and didn't he, isn't his death, is there something mysterious about it? It was not expected. Not really. Uh, I mean, mysterious in the sense that I think there was malpractice. Really? And, you know, it's one of those things where it went down a rabbit hole where no doctor was going to like help us out. Yeah. But, you know, he, he had some gastrointestinal episode and he was puking up blood and he went to the hospital and they stabilized him and they told his wife, Lisa, and his son, Alex, to go home. It'd be a couple hours before they released him, but everything was okay. Uh-huh. So that's when Alex called me and told me about the incident. And it happened to be on a day in L.A. called Carmageddon when they reopened the 405 freeway after this fucking five-year renovation that meant nothing. Mm-hmm. and. Because of that incident, when he called me, I was at lunch. I immediately paid the bill and started trying to get to the hospital. Well, what should have taken 20 minutes took one hour. By the time I got there, he had just expired. Oh. Because he had gone into some, he'd gone into some um, hypertension and they gave him, forget what they gave him. They gave him an epi, and I don't understand why they did that. And then that caused heart failure, so they put him on a ventilator, a breathing machine. And then they couldn't restart his heart. Oh. And so it was an odd series of events. None of it makes sense. I have a 300-page report. Doctors have said to me, this looks, this doesn't add up. This doesn't pass the smell test. And, and you got to understand, they, you know, his wife and, and son and daughter were going to come and pick him up. Oh. Right? So, so when they got the call, they, they freaked out because they had been yes. told everything was okay. And in fact, he was in his bed, awake, talking, you know, oh. said, I'll see you. Yeah. <laughs> well, we, we, so it's, uh, look, I was very close with Bob. We, you know. We really worked together well in the band. Yeah. And he he became a really great engineer. He solved yes. a lot of technical problems all the time. So we were able to when we'd work on songs, we were able to do it without any outside people. Yeah. And uh I still have my number, uh, his number in my phone because I can't deal with the fact yes. that I can't talk to him uh and that we can't work together. That is tragic. I remember when it happened and I remember all the posts on social media about how tragic it was and it's never made sense to me and it still doesn't. That is so sad. It's um, yes. Okay. One last one. I've always thought the Devo 2.0 with the kids was an yeah. odd choice. What motivated that? <laughs> I'm
That's another thing where, you know, I, I forget the guy's name now, and I'm very sorry. I apologize up front for forgetting his name. From Hollywood Records, who did all the Disney stuff with, you know, Disney song releases on Hollywood. Right. He had done something with uh, They Might Be Giants. Mm-hmm. And he had this idea that he wanted Devo repackaged for, you know, pre to middle schoolers. For the Disney Channel. Mm-hmm. And he didn't have an idea. You know, it's like, how do we use your songs? What do we do? Mm-hmm. I said, what if I scout a band, get kids that can really play, Aaron, and we'll record them playing our songs, and we'll do these background plate videos that are kind of like Devo during the Oh No period mm-hmm. that relate to, but we'll do it with you know, a level of content that is safe for, you know, people 13 and under. For kids, right. Uh, and he, he loved the idea. So it was this long process. It's quite a serious budget. And I found the band and worked with them and rehearsed them and then shot, you know, a, a full-length video worth of songs. Uh-huh. And we went out on tour. We toured six cities. Wild. With the backgrounds, plates, and everything. Wild. But once again, you know, I never catch a break. Devo never catches a break. Uh, Disney, it was Disney that kind of like rained on the parade and kind of put it on the back burner because they had that, um, whatever it was called, a musical thing going on, uh, after school musical. Oh, uh, high school musical? Yeah. Like that. Yeah. That was a big thing they were and that's what they were spending all their marketing dollars on and advertising time on, on the Disney channel. So yeah. 2.0 got the caboose, you know, it got Ugh. the backseat and it, people saw it, but not many people. And there was no push behind it. Ugh. Yeah, that was, that seemed like such an odd choice, but I thought you explaining the, I remember the, they might be giants album coming out that being a big deal. And you're right. What's a, my kids love Devo. Because I've been showing them Devo videos since they were little kids, you know? Yeah. And uh, so what better? It's perfect. Anyway, Jerry, I, I, if you can't tell, I love you a lot. And I think Devo are one of the most important artists that have ever been. And it breaks my heart sometimes that you don't get the credit you deserve. But know that I know that Devo are important. And thank you for everything you. you do. Thank you. Yeah. Great talk to you. All right. There you have it, Jerry Casale. Again, please check out that video, if nothing else. Even if you don't think you like the song or don't care, the video has to be seen because it's incorporating all these really interesting current techniques around filmmaking and animation and all that kind of stuff. 
Really, really cool stuff. I want to close it out. <laughs> so he, he stated in here that he's not happy with the Shout album, and I understand. It's probably their weakest album, although I don't think Devo really has a weak album. Um, but I want to play a song off of it called Here to Go, because I like this song, and I kind of like Shout, too. So anyway, that's, uh, that's Jerry, and I hope, I hope you enjoyed that. I'm pretty proud of that conversation. I love him. So the next two weeks are going to be devoted to 80s one-hit wonders. The, the kind of angle here, though, is that neither of these one-hits are still very ubiquitous. You probably remember them if you, hear the, if you heard them, but you don't hear them all the time. So I hope that this is kind of like a flashback, you know? It's like jumping into a time machine and hearing something you haven't heard about or thought about for a long time. That's what the next two weeks are, okay? Huge thanks, as always, to Yan the Man Makevich, my right-hand man, for everything that you do. Thank you, buddy. Um, you guys know you can find us on Facebook and like our page. You can send, them, send us a message on there, or you can send us an email at thehustlepod at gmail.com, or you can find us on Twitter at thehustlepod. Um, I hope you've been enjoying those podcaster panels that I've been kind of throwing out there lately. It's just my way to kind of reconnect with some of our friends, tell them thank you, share the information with all of you. I hope it, I hope you enjoy it. There might be another one, I'm not sure. Anyway, thanks folks, we love you.